What up? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Spencer Hillegas. He is the founder of Madison Investing Co. Him and his wife started uh, Madison Investing, and you can go check them out at madisoninvesting.co. Really cool conversation. He did 13 years in tech, working for notable startups like Zero, Gusto, and then transitioned over to starting his own business. So we get deep into understanding your customer's identity and also your customer's relationship with money and what it's going to really take to separate them you know, from their cash for your goods and service, for your product, for, in their case, an investing platform. So it's cool, cool um, conversation, especially if you're interested in, you know, the financial aspects and financial psychology of your consumer. I definitely think this episode's for you. If you don't like those things, I mean, press skip, that's on you. Um, as always, this episode and this podcast is brought to you by Cave Social. Cave Social is a social media marketing company based out of Los Angeles that helps companies create content for their social media feeds and runs their social media ads. If you want to check them out or you need some help with your social media marketing, head over to www.cavesocial.com. All right, that's the ad read. Let's get into this. What's going on? Welcome to another episode of Mind Your Marketing. Today, I am sitting with Spencer Hillegas. Spencer has a cool career. He's worked in tech for 13 years. He was at companies like Zero, Gusto, Lending Home. He contributes his slots to the Forbes Real Estate Council. But just under four years ago, he started his own company, Madison Investing, which helps busy professionals build passive income. And he does that through investing in commercial real estate projects. Spencer, I gave a very, very brief intro. I want to say welcome to the show, but tell us who you are and a little bit more about your journey. Yeah, Jordan, thanks so much for the invite. You know, this is like a wonderful way to start the day. So I appreciate it and I'm honored to be here with you. So yeah, I, I'm based out here in Silicon Valley and you gave a really concise, awesome intro. I appreciate that. I've been in tech for 13 years, spanning about five different software companies, uh, largely been doing operations teams, sales teams, you know, growth teams building. I think I had one titled year, if you want to be uh, formal about it, in marketing, you know, at a Fortune 500 company. So I guess I'm a marketer. I don't know if that counts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, beyond that, we had an interesting path to get to where we're at right now. And I'll keep this super brief. But basically, I rejected the fact that I grew up in a real estate household for basically my entire 13-year career. My, my dad was actually uh, one of the top performing residential real estate brokers in the 90s, extremely elite crowd. We had a great life financially because of that until we hit some really choppy waters. And so, you know, we went through a really challenging time. I won't go too far into it, but, you know, I lost my younger brother to cancer. Parents got divorced, dark decade, challenging times. My dad's business crumbled. I watched all that happen after growing up inside of a real estate business. And for some reason, I just didn't want to touch that real estate stuff with a 10-foot pole for my entire career. So I ran screaming into technology. And so that's what I did. Um, and now here we are, you know, flash forward to about maybe, maybe 2016, I got nudged into a, uh, a tech company, which was also a lender. And, and that's Lending Home. You know, they're the biggest fix and flip lender in the country, basically helping people flip a single family home. So I got the crash course, you know, a boot camp, whatever you want to call it, um, to, on how the, all that stuff worked. And as a result, I got the bug on investing in real estate. I mean, I, I had my own home. We, had, we bought our own home here in the Bay Area for my kids and my wife. But then we realized 
there, there's really no exit strategy for ourselves financially from that tech company grind. And like, I, you know, I think at the time I was in my early thirties and, uh, it just wasn't looking like a promising outcome. I didn't want to grind for 60 hours a week for the next 30 years. And so we started investing in these projects. By doing that, we, we kind of attracted interest just by our friends, colleagues in our network. And suddenly everyone was asking us, what the heck are you guys doing to invest in these things? And can we hear more about it? And we realized we had a business in front of us. So that's how it all came about. It's so funny. You know, you, you end up in these accidental business owner startup type things. And that happened. I mean, that happened to us. I was just... We had, you know, a story go, I hate saying the word viral. We had a story go viral, made it to the top of Reddit that we were doing for a blog we managed. And then it turned out that like, oh, hey, when you tell stories and it resonate with people, there's a business there. And you have that aha moment, like you're saying, like you sat there and you're like, people are asking you, okay, they want to get involved. And then it's that aha moment where it goes off and you say, okay, we got to, we got to lean into this. And it sounds like it too, from the timeline was right around when I think people were starting to wake up to the fact of like, I don't need to kill myself in the Bay Area working 100 hours a week for a startup, right? And this isn't, I know I've been sold that this is the only way to be quote unquote successful, happy, you know, if using words like grind and wearing t-shirts that say hustle on them. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we're waking up to the fact of like, oh no, mental health and using work and being passionate about work, but using it as a vehicle for the rest of life is really important. And you see that with, if you look right now, there's happiness scores and anger scores based on which apps are open in your phone. And the two apps that score the highest for people, the internal happiness when they open are no, you know, no surprise, headspace and calm. <laughs> One of them I use every day. <laughs> right? And you're like, oh. And then you start to see like other the social media platforms, which uh, make people feel anxiety and anger and all these things. And I think that it, it just speaks to that larger trend, you know, that we're all looking for that. So that's awesome that you started your own business. And I know we talked pre-show. You said you started that with your wife. So did you guys both lean in full time? right away? Oh, great question, man. And and by the way, I think you hit on a topic that a lot of people really miss, which is around that era of 2016, 2015. You know, speaking in broad strokes, the hustle movement is one that became more nuanced around then, in my opinion, as well. And, and so I, I think uh, we can go you know separately into that discussion. But on the wife partnership thing, yeah. So Jennifer and I both had the benefit of being in our separate careers for the past, you know, decade plus. And so she has been a marketer for her entire career over in CPG, different, very different than tech. Like she actually gets to hold the products that they make. I've never actually physically been able to hold anything that my teams are either, you know, building or providing to customers or selling to customers because we do software. So we had these separate, you know, languages of business, but we had never gotten into regular actual business planning discussions together. And, And it was... It was a little interesting of an experience at first, you know, so I, I was the one on nights and weekends and even brutally early mornings when I was realizing I need to go and just do this hard. Like I I need to go and find the energy, find the physical uh, time and energy to build this business outside of a demanding day job. And so I was waking up at 4am to do that work for Madison Investing prior to doing all my my prep for my day job you know know, how am i going to do a kickoff meeting in the morning with my team yada yada so i was doing all that um jennifer and i though we are strategically very involved on a regular basis together she is the marketing brain she is also she's not only a cmo but she is like the the co-founder in every possible way so we sat there in those first couple weekends early this is like back in 2016 
And when people always ask, like, how the heck do you work with your wife? You know, we're not the first people to do it. I mean, plenty of people do it, but most people are terrified of it. You know, most people are terrified of working with their spouse because they just can't crack the code on how they're going to get through this and still have their personal relationships intact. And what we, and to get to where we are now with a mutual trust and a deep mutual respect and love as a foundation, as corny as this might sound to people out there on a business oriented podcast, um, I strongly encourage you for the financial wherewithal of your, your family and just the harmony of your family. Get into a family financial planning discussion and don't leave that discussion until you feel aligned. And if you can get through that and still be together, you're going to find a whole level of joy that you've never achieved before because we got to tears, we got to yelling, we got to reconciliation, and we ran that cycle at least two to three times in a single weekend. And we both committed to get through that damn planning exercise for the very first like V1 Madison investing financial forecast. (laughs) So once we got there, it was a beautiful thing, but it was hard. It was very hard. And that's a, that's amazing. And you know, you say it's one of those things where we have a defense up, right? We say like, oh, as corny as this may sound, it's based on love. I actually don't think that's corny. I think a lot of companies, you know, people start with their friends and there's companionship that way too. Or you always hear people who've never opened a business in their life say, don't start a business with friends. You know, or the, and I'm always like, I'm always like, okay, you're that same person who tells me not to open a restaurant. I'm like, last time I checked, it's like, there's restaurants everywhere. Right, right. It, it's all of these, you know, cliche statements. And I'm like, look, no, if you can, I started my first company with friends. It was great. And then, it, you know, that came to a, a natural close, but it was all mutual and we all went separate ways. It was, but still my friends today. It was awesome. And I think that for anyone listening, if you're thinking about that, or if, if you know a friend that's perfect for something, maybe your uncle's advice at Thanksgiving isn't what you should, you know, take as right. Uh, right. as 100% truth. Maybe do some research. If your friend's a good fit, you're going to be able to work longer hours the same way if you're in a partnership, you know, with your wife, that you're going to be able to really trust each other to the nth degree. And, and that's just so important. It's critical. And then, you know, you said something else there, and I'll just give the listeners a little tip. If you're looking for any financial planning stuff, I highly recommend checking out a guy named Ramit, uh, Ramit Sethi and his book, I Will Teach You How to Be Rich, which he admits is a corny title, but uh, he's got some good stuff in there about just financial planning at a personal level that I think you can translate over. Cool. So you guys started the company, you're in there. Talk to me about how you grew outside of, you know, okay, you had the friends and family come in. Awesome. What were the next steps to growth? How did you get that first person you didn't know to invest with you? This is interesting from my perspective, because now I get regularly reached out to by so many other, you know, peer group uh, members within the real estate space. And, and, And we target specifically helping investors who might not necessarily be super familiar with investing in things like commercial real estate. And so as a result, we try to go back to, you know, our our tech audience, you know, and so we actually can get into personas and target personas here in a moment. But the first step that we took, which I haven't heard a single other peer in the real estate crowd actually talk about is once we got that first wave, just think think of it like the first degree connections you actually know in the real world from uh, if you're, if it's your LinkedIn list. Right. And so I, for, for 13 years, I literally did not add a single person on LinkedIn out of thousands who I did not know in the real world. So not, not everyone has to be a weirdo like me on that front, right? I, I just found that to be highly, highly helpful as a gate, even though my, my follower count is not huge. I know all of them. So we went there and just, you know, we got the word out. And so once we tapped that, we realized we don't know enough about these guys. Like we just don't, you know, we're talking about something 
that is a relatively large amount of, of money to transact, right? You're basically, we are investing our own money in these deals and we expect that other people are going to invest alongside us. So if it's a $50,000 minimum, that's not something that you necessarily want to treat with a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of education. You really got to dig in. You really got to understand how are people going to perceive this? How are people going to understand this? Like what are, what are they going to learn and ramp up on before they pull the trigger on like an, an investment of that size? Because some people are putting in a six digit number, right? So we created an interview and it was a no pitch at all. No pitch interview to go and do deep research on at least 50, you know, 50 to 60 roughly is where, where it landed interviews with people from within my own network. And these are not folks that I know really well. I mean, this is like maybe the, the lightest of the first degree connections, a couple second degree connections and introductions I had to get created the template, roughly 12 to 15 questions. I think this is a while ago now asking and every single session I would record it. And I wanted to understand things such as what is your relationship to money? Like, what is your relationship person or, you know, GM of tech company or VP of product or whatever their title from different sides of the tech business? Almost all of them came from tech, though, because because that is where our target personas fall. And we knew that much from our initial uh, our initial investor crowd. So I, I asked all those questions, got through all those interviews. And sure, we got a couple investors out of it. It really was not the point. And that is where I usually lose people when I'm trying to coach others and they reach out about the real estate investing stuff because they say, how do you find all your investors? And I'm like, go understand who you're trying to talk to first and how to best serve them. And they say, well, what do you mean? How can I just go get them now? And I'm like, you still don't get it. Like, like just stop trying to get stuff quickly. And just just go wrap your head around, like asking a question such as how often do you actually look at the stuff that you have in your portfolio? Like, like, do you even track your net worth? You know, all these things. And, and big disclaimer for everyone out there. I am not your fiduciary. I'm not your financial advisor. I love that a moment ago, Jordan is out there like educating and connecting people with resources for people who are financial advisors, because you have to put your own, you know, manager of your family, manager of your own wealth hat on when you do this stuff to some degree, guys, you don't have to become super interested in things like taxes, but, but, th- but that is the kind of stuff that I wanted to understand is how little or how mo- how much do people really care and understand or want want to invest time to understand this stuff. So we and, did and that. And I think I think there like what you're saying too for the from a listener perspective is so important of like if you're starting a company or if you're feeling like you're at a the growth is plateaued at your company, ta- re-examine your buyer personas and really go through and do an interview of your existing customer base. We started working with a vegan subscription box, right? This was wow. the last year. And I'm not vegan. I look, I eat a steak right now if you put it in front of me, okay? But <laughs> I'm the wrong, you know, but we understand marketing. I said, look, we're going to interview hundreds of your customers. We're going to, and we built out like a big, you know, jot form thing and it was all intuitive and had uh, a bunch of dynamic questions that would come up based on previous responses. And, but really, we're like, we need to get to the psyche of the consumer. And in that instance, it was like, okay, are you vegan because of the health benefits or because of the animal protections, right? They're two, right. two separate things. I don't know going in. I have, a, I have a hunch. But what I've learned in you know nearly 10 years of running an agency is uh, my hunch is usually wrong. So we're going to go into <laughs> the actual customer data. So I think that's so crucial there that you went in and said, okay. For me to fill a theater, 
right? If we envision a theater, for me to fill a theater with my potential audience, I need to focus on getting one seat in that theater. And what is that message to that person? What is the story they're being told? And what's important to them? And then I can replicate that, right? And it's just so crucial. So you built the buyer personas out, you got a better understanding. Did that lead to like the foundation, I guess, of I hate marketing, saying marketing plans or business plans, because I find most of those things are written and then thrown out like a week later. But did that lead to the foundation of, I guess, like the next marketing effort or big push? Nailed it. That's right. That's exactly right. And so so those, so we had put together two personas, two buyer personas. And here, here's where Jennifer takes 100% of the lead because she's just very experienced on this in a, in a traditional sense and in a, in a modern sense in marketing. So we actually have those personas. We haven't really changed them that much because they continue to resonate and they continue to inform us correctly. We probably will inf- you know, adjust them over time, but we haven't needed to yet. So to exactly your point, Jordan, we took those insights from the interviews. We just poured through them. I listened to the recordings a bunch and then we, we decided, okay, yeah, we're done with these personas. And, and so that was it. You know, And none, none of that really spiked our growth. <laughs> it was a pretty slow going process. And we had to just acknowledge that and accept that up front. So after we did that, one thing I do want to mention, and I think that this has to be the right, the right type of business, the right time. And, you know, frankly, you have to have a certain comfort level with this next approach. But I will say, I turned myself and ourselves into the primary case study. So I have wanted to go out and build my own company for a while. But most, most importantly, I wanted to be a present dad. That's my big why. I want to be a great dad. It sounds, again, corny. I'll give the disclaimer. Not corny. Not corny. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, no, I, more people should have that than want to do that. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, so, so I want to be a great dad. I want to be a present husband. We all have, have heard this narrative and see the, the science and the studies out there saying we work too much and we should be more balanced and integrated in our lives. So I took the leap and just said, you know what? Because of the investments and the types of things we've already been putting our own money into, I think that we can, we've gotten to the point where I can just pull the ripcord, coming back to your original question, and, and I can leave go, go and go full time. And that is something people jump very quickly into very early. I, I waited years, right? I, I waited like three and a half years before we got to a point of reasonable stability, replaced a good chunk of my income, you know, like 70% roughly of my W-2 income. And I knew it was also a deliberate decision. And, and we're super open and transparent about this. Like I was doing it to prove a point. Clearly, like I was doing it to say, look, I did it. You can too. And so that's the story. That's what resonates. That's the story that got picked up by Business Insider when they did a profile piece in January. And that certainly helped. And so like that, that's the kind of stuff I think that, you know, not, it's not for everybody, but if you're willing to find that, you know, the, the, the timing, the preparation, the courage, the wherewithal to go out and say, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm good to be your poster child, um, then it certainly helps because you want to get that emotionally resonating connection. And there's nothing that's going to resonate more than a story that is authentic to the core. And it's about you, frankly. Yeah. And that's that whole, uh, you know, narrative that we hear over and over again is that entrepreneurs and businesses are usually bred out of people solving their own problems and a problem that they have. And then it turns into, oh, I'm not the only person who's experiencing this. And then you put that out there and exactly, you put it out there to be like, look, we did it. And then people who know you go, hey, I know Spencer, you know, I know Jennifer. I'm kind of on a similar career trajectory. Like I could, I could do this. You know, (laughs) this isn't crazy. Okay. Maybe I am at the office a little too long. That's really cool. So you guys did that. You baked that out. Now, you know, you're a couple of years removed from starting the company. 
I guess what comes next? What is the next? Is it just a, is the lifestyle the number one importance or company growth? Like what, what's next in that plan for you guys? Yeah, I uh, appreciate you asking. So a couple things. I do think I would get incredibly bored if it was pure only lifestyle. Let's go play on the beach, you know, hang out. That's obviously outside the context of COVID-19. But I would just say that, you know, the lifestyle stuff, it is real though. Like I've, I've trimmed my hours literally more than in half. And so I'm a guy who's always been very much um, work to live, not live to work. That's, and, and I'm not commenting on what's right or wrong there. It's, it's purely just that, that's been my why. So all that said though, all of us are most fulfilled when we're adding value to others. I believe that. And, and, and I think the education that I got the hard way, if you want to call it that, by grinding and reading a literal 24 books over the course of two years on this nerdy, nerdy topic, Jordan, of like taxes and, you know, (laughs) commercial real estate and devouring 400 plus podcasts and like going to meetups and talking to people, all these things. Like, I don't think everyone, I don't want everyone else to have to go through that. And I do think there's such a narrative out there. I mean, I'll speak on behalf of the real estate crowd and say, it's so binary. It's too binary sometimes when people say, you know, kind of screw the W2 world. Why don't you just quit your job and go find this magical thing called passive income? I don't subscribe to that narrative. Like I, I actually think that, that that's, that's inaccurate because I loved my W2 career. I wasn't trying to run away from it. I just simply wanted to have a bigger priority, which was my family. And so people want to work, people want to add value. And I want to make sure they understand that things that are traditional Wall Street mainstream financial education not to be too preachy for folks here, but this is actually something I truly believe to be a fact. And I have the data to back it if they want to reach out and send me an email. I think 401k is a crap. <laughs> you know, I, I think the traditional Wall Street education on this stuff is not meant to help us succeed. And it's frankly intended to help us retire a little more poor than, than we are at our current state. So. Oh, when you start to see the fees, <laughs> fees on those things, you go like, oh, if the fees are higher, it'll affect 28% of your ending retirement fund and all this stuff. And like, you know, I think the world is slowly awaking to that. that like, yeah. Oh, maybe I should read a Ray Dalio book. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, I, I, that's a damn good book, by the way. And so I, I would say that to that point, like, I really think if I had to summarize what I would like to do, we want to address what you just said. We want to accelerate that education process. And it's not going to serve everyone. I'm not, I'm not going to sit on here and, and try to say, like, we're, we're going to become a nonprofit. That's not the point. The point is, we're going to do this in a for-profit way. We are going to bring the education along with it. I don't know where that journey ends. I, we have talked about eventually restructuring the business to be able to reach a broader audience and create more opportunities for a broader audience. Because a lot of the stuff that we do, you know, it's it's a 50k minimum for a lot of these things. You know, so it's not like everyone can participate. But you know, I do have friends and family who have fundamentally changed the way that they handle their investments for the better and, and their lives are better because of it. So that feels great to me. And, and we want to keep doing that kind of stuff. So speaking on a couple of things, a couple of things you said there, one that I completely agree with a nine to five is not a prison sentence. If people are in those jobs, they like that. That's for them. Uh, I find it's a lot of people who are starting a business or are quick to hate on nine to fives to really justify. It's really a mask for them justifying their own decision not to do that. And then two, which I want you to expand on is, okay, money is a hard topic for people to talk about and to admit they don't know. What are some of the challenges or things you've learned with marketing messaging and communicating the importance of, okay, financial education, and then obviously leading into that, the opportunities that you guys can provide. But I think it's such a tough topic for people to even, you know, open the book on. So how do you approach that? 
you know, from a messaging standpoint and making it more approachable, uh, yeah. you know, for that potential customer. Stories, you know, I mean, like everything else, it's, and not to be overly generic, but it's, you just asked like the big question, right? In my opinion, it's the big question, which is how do we get this taboo thing? And, you know, I think every, every family in particular, where most of this financial education starts is, is, is going to be a different uh, type of discourse. You know, like, I mean, you, you brought up the example, I think you used the, uh, the, the term earlier, it was like, like Uncle Joe, you know, are you taking advice from, from, from like some uncle, Uncle John, the dinner table, you know, whether that's financial advice, life advice, or otherwise. And frankly, that is still where most people, myself included, are, that's where we get our understandings, you know, our parents, you know, our, of money and, and our relationships with money. And is money the thing that mom or dad told us never to ask about? You know, is, is, is money the thing that, that we used to uh, open up the piggy bank and count the change together when we were kids? You know, so the, the stories that people share with me now about money and how they got to the point where they are either comfortable or not comfortable whatsoever talking about it have been super educational. And, 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 I, and I try to actually reflect on that with Jennifer and we think about that before we put messaging out there because I've realized it's a long process. It's just a long process, Jordan. Yeah, you know, and, and I, th I think in terms of like messaging, LinkedIn on social, just, just as an example, we deliberately decided to lean in heavy almost exclusively to LinkedIn as our social media platform. And that's guided by personas, but I post stuff that is around the topic. It's, it's not on the topic, it's around the topic. And it, and it comes down to stories, right? It comes down to stories of, well, you know, people have time, they wish they had time to go do this thing. Oh, wait, how much money did, did you drop into your 401k last year? Well, you know, maybe, maybe, why did you decide to do that? Did you do it because you thought you had to, because your friends told you to, or did you do it because it was a deliberate planning decision? You know, it's, it really runs the gamut, but I can just say, I had someone literally go into our marketing funnel via our website, just about three months ago, I met him at a meetup in person a year and a half before that. I, I in no way thought he was going to come come through that funnel. He had to go off, do his own deep research on this stuff, come back around, go into the funnel. Now that's not every person, but that's not uncommon. You know, it's it's just a slow process. And I think that it doesn't. Well, okay, obviously, investment size matters. But when I what I'm going to say next is, it doesn't matter if it's fifty thousand or 50 bucks with a product that you're selling or product that you're asking people to invest in there you hit the nail on the head with a story is what's going to resonate and what's going to help make that sale uh happen or make that investment happen because uh, a consumer wants to know okay where is the value here right if i go and i'm looking for something like an, a notebook right and notebooks on Amazon go from like $3 up to a moleskin is $20 and it's the same product. Why are people buying a moleskin? Well, right now I'm sitting here with four Nike check marks on me, right? Why? And if we start to analyze that and think about that in our products and listeners, you know, what you're on your marketing team or your own small business, thinking about that a consumer has to separate themselves. They have to take their cash. They're going to give it to you either for a professional service, for an investment or for a product. Um, and thinking about the steps that they are going to go through to be, feel comfortable with that, whether it's, you know, $50,000, a substantial amount of money for a lot of people to say, okay, I'm going to invest in this and invest in my future. So we have to educate them on what that looks like 20 years from now. We also have to be considerate of, okay, what's the time horizon of their investment, right? If I'm 65 years old, maybe I, I, that's not what I want to do. I, who knows? Um, but I think it's a useful opportunity. Thing for you know small business operators, owners, and marketers to go through is say, okay, people are going to 
people hold cash so near and dear. We need to think about the steps that they're going through, going through at a psychological level to put their cash into investment or put it into a product that makes their life easier, et cetera. That's right. And can I add one more thing to that, Jordan? Totally. So, you know, you hit so well on this topic. You know, I, so there is a sense of relativity here that I think most people, it, it, money is so taboo. We don't feel comfortable going out there and clearly saying, here's how much is in my bank account, how much is in yours, right? Like, like that, that would be pr- pretty darn inappropriate, right? So how do we have a conversation though, where you can go out to someone and say, I want to help you hold up the mirror to where you're at in a way that lets you do it in that in your own privacy and in your own way you're comfortable with. But I, would, I do want you to know where you stand because that's how you goal set. That's how you actually take an honest look at yourself and you figure out how to make meaningful changes that will get you to the end state, the future state that you want. So first comment would be people really don't think they have a shot at actually going and making a massive difference in their financial livelihood. They think that they're stuck with what they got. Maybe they can flex forward a little bit, but they don't think they could literally be walking out of their job someday and never have to rely on another human being's business vision to sustain their family and feed their family. And that that belief is critical. And so like painting a future state, like something as simple as me literally going onto LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago and posting a, a an authentic, genuine moment with my son because I had a chance to go buy a Bobo with him and I didn't have to worry about doing a bunch of meetings or doing planning sessions for a different business. That's not me being braggadocious. That's me authentically saying, I did this. I'm not a genius. I'm not in my 60s, so you can do this. And that's an authentic comment. So so that's kind of the first one. The second one, and this might kind of rock the boat a little bit for some people, and here's where the defensiveness starts to come up, Jordan. There's a really excellent book. It's called The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. And by the way, if you're new to all this real estate self-development stuff, just get over the title. You know, I know it's I know it's kind of swarmy, but that's just the way it comes. It's gotten great content. Top three book for me in real estate. And in there they have a table and it labels with actual return percentages what they consider healthy money, wealthy money and dead money. And they consider anything below. I mean, essentially three to four percent. If it can't if it can't keep up with actual inflation, the math says your money is dying. It is effectively losing value. So. What does that mean for people who follow the traditional route? That means if they're in things like CDs, that means if they're things in money market accounts, particularly right now more than ever, their money is losing value real time. So that's the stuff. If you, when you get it in front of, let's just say I work in tech, a lot of tech people pulls hard from a top five Ivy league crowd. I'm not ripping on them. I went to Boulder. So I'm always going to have a chip on my shoulder. Sorry guys. But I just got to say, that's where the defensiveness comes up. People who've always had all the answers and think that they've always gotten A's and they don't achieve the wealth they want by the time they're 40, they're not getting an A on this part. And they need to realize if they want to, they've got to go way beyond the traditional financial path that they've been on because their money is dying in a savings account that is not getting them the most potential for it. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. And that's like, it's pivotal that people understand that. And from a, a marketing, you know, perspective, it comes down to this base thing, right? Education and education for your customer. And you do that education and inspiration and really reframing the identity of the customer. So Nike, for instance, I, I talked about I'm wearing check marks. Nike reframes the identity of, identity of the customer. When they put on their clothes, you've now taken on the identity of athlete, right? Right. And it's the same thing is, okay, when I'm going into... Whatever it is, say you're using an investment tool, Wealthsimple, Betterment, you're investing with a company like Spencer's in Madison Investing. When you log in to see what's going on, if you're just checking your bank account, not 
But it's putting on that identity of, okay, hey, I'm now putting on my investor identity, my financial, you know, identity. And I think that instilling the, that to what you said of people believing that they can do that and helping the messaging from a marketing standpoint to say, look, you can do this. I'm just a regular guy. Here's what I did. I think that's so, so crucial. We have that with the podcast. People reach out. They're like, man, how'd you do that? How'd you start the podcast? I'm like, I went and punched into Google how to start podcasts and ordered $65 worth of equipment to my house. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know. And then I just started messaging like, you know, full disclosure, everyone. I, I, I message people on LinkedIn and ask them to be guests. And, you know, I ask 100 people, I get 20 people that say, let's do it. And now I have a show. And it's like, it's really not that, like, I just put on that 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 identity. I'm the podcast host now. So I find it to be a really useful exercise to look at those identities we have at ourselves, but then also the products we're working with and the products we're working on. How are we impacting our customer's identity and what identity do they take on when they're engaging with us? You think about a sports fan, right? If you're, you like, I'm in LA, you like the LA Rams. The minute that person puts a jersey on to go to the game, they're a different person, right? They've changed their identity for those four hours. I'm the same. I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan. I, you know, the Vikings are breaking my heart like they do every season. I have a different identity when I wear that jersey. So I think that that's a really, really useful thing to do. Yeah. I mean, to that point, the identity. Oh my gosh, like that was a, you just hit the nail on the head. So a quick blurb we now share with every investor after one of our deals closes, and it's and particularly those that have their first time investing in real estate ever, they just invested in a piece of a 200 unit apartment building in the middle of Charlotte, North Carolina. It may, and, and they may never physically see this in, in person, right? I tell them, cool. When people ask you at a party, what did you just spend that $100,000 on? Be like, I didn't spend it on something. I invested in a piece of a 200 unit apartment building. I'm a real estate investor now, and this is part of my portfolio. And that is it. I mean, that's it right there. People, some people care about being able to say that, but no one wants to be caught flat footed, not being able to explain that. And so they want to understand what they're doing. They want to internalize the identity. And that's, it is, it should be fun too. Frankly, it should, it should, it should be part of a journey and, and, and achieving a vision of a future life. So I, I totally appreciate what you just called out about the Jersey man. I mean, I, I even couched, in, in, in a book that, I don't know, it's going to come out in a year or two years, but I'm writing a book and, and it's going to have a two ethoses that I pulled out of my really challenging, the, the upbringing comment I made at the very beginning of our conversation, Jordan, when I watched my dad's business crumble before he built it back up again and our family had to downsize significantly, I realized from that era, it came down to financial offense and playing financial defense. And there's sub bullets to go into all these things, the way that I think about it and the way that I talk to people about the way we approach it. But as a, as a non-sports guy, it's kind of funny to use that, by the way. But I'll just say that financial offense and financial defense is something to be played. Most people don't even realize it's a game. It's the most serious game you're probably going to be playing every single day of your working life. And so if you, if you acknowledge that as a starting point and realize you are a player already in the game, you're just not paying attention to how the plays are going or who's going to win. And so that's the kind of stuff that, um, that, that really matters. And I appreciate the Jersey example very much. For sure. Well, I'm going to let you get out of here, but before I do tell people where they, uh, they can find you online. Yeah, uh, probably two ways. Um, so if you want to reach out directly, just please come check out our website, uh, madisoninvesting.com. Um, you can also shoot me an email if you'd like, uh, spencer at madisoninvesting.com. But it's a it's a free program. There's no obligation to actually invest if you just want to join. Uh, there's a quick compliance form on our website if you fill that out, and I'll reach out and set up a time to talk. You can also just find me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, that is how Jordan and I originally connected, frankly, and, I, and I'm so glad that we did because this has been an awesome conversation. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm not going to bite. 
you know, just to feel free to connect if you want to send over an invite. Beautiful. And guys, I will put uh, all of that information in the show notes page. If you are on our website, just go down and check that out. Or if you're on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, everyone, I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. Have a great day. Um.